Uh, well, good morning. Uh, again, happy Easter. We're still in Easter. It's Easter. I was, I was talking about this morning. It's Easter all the way to Pentecost. Maybe you weren't aware of that. We get to just ride this Easter wave all the way to the end of May. So uh, praise God. He is risen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Uh, we continue to celebrate that. Last week was an amazing, amazing Sunday. It was so great to be together uh, as the people of God, to worship him. Uh, and it was such a special day. We had uh, 14 people get baptized, praise God, three children, 11 uh, teenage boys. Uh, just unbelievable, unbelievable. Still uh, just praising God for that. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more uh, about uh, last Sunday and those baptisms in particular a little bit later in the service. But I want us to uh, turn our attention right now back to Ephesians. If you'll remember, we were in uh, this letter of Ephesians before um, Palm Sunday. And so we're going to get back into this series we're calling Life Made New, a study of Ephesians. So if you want to open a Bible, you can grab one of those blue Bibles near you or up on your uh, phone if you want to open it up to Ephesians chapter 4, those verses that Mike just read. That's where we'll be this morning. And as you're turning there, I just want to review real quick the first half of this letter, chapters 1 through 3. In in that first half, we discovered uh, who we are. Uh, That was the the big question. Who are we? A question of identity. And Paul tells us that in Christ, uh, we are those who are chosen, adopted, redeemed, and sealed by His Spirit. And then he continues to lay out the gospel. This beautiful and powerful good news that Jesus has rescued us from sin and death and through faith in him by grace, we can experience not only new life with God, but life as a part of God's new people, Uh, life with him as a church, as his one holy people. And so that brings us up to chapter four. And so in chapter four, Paul shifts his focus. His, his, uh, his focus shifts from a letter about the good news of the gospel uh, to the implications of the good news. Uh, from who we are in Christ, now he's going to talk about, well, how do we now live in light of that new identity? How do we live in Christ? And so I'm excited uh, about the next several weeks because we're going to talk about what it means to live as God's one holy people in true community, uh, about how the gospel shapes how we think uh, about our lives, things like work and marriage and sexuality, and parenting, uh, and how we face the everyday spiritual battles of following Jesus in this world. And so I hope you'll join us over the next few weeks as we uh, get further into this beautiful and powerful letter and consider the practical implications of the gospel. Uh, But this morning, I want us us to focus on these opening verses, 1 through 16, in chapter 4, because here... What Paul does is he actually gives us some kind of foundational things that we need to live out the gospel as God's people. Uh, And we won't be able to touch on everything that he talks about here, but I want to highlight at least two things. And the first is that he calls us to live as the church. Uh, We need power and practice. To be able to do that, to live as the church, we need power and practice. We'll talk about that. And then the second thing he says, to live as a church, we need to immerse ourselves in the word. It's what he's communicating. So we need power and practice, and we need to immerse ourselves in the word. So let's look at that first one. To live as the church, we need power and practice. That is, we need the supernatural power of God himself, of the Holy Spirit within us, and we need practice. We have to work hard. We have to have a level of commitment uh, to following Jesus. And so we see this when Paul, in chapter 4, at the very beginning, he says he's urging us to do what? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. He hits our calling. What is our calling? Our calling is to be one holy people. That's what he's explained in chapters one through three. One people, we talked about this with with differences, but not with barriers. Uh, We are united in Christ and holy, that is distinct, set apart from the world around us because now uh, as a new uh, creation, as this new people, we belong to God. And so Paul's saying, that's your call, to be one holy people. And he says, live worthy of that calling. Live worthy of that calling. Or you might say, in line with that reality is what he's saying. Worthy of that calling. Live in line with that new identity as the one holy people of God. Uh, So that's it. That's all you have to do. Easy enough. Yeah, just be holy, Ryan. Just step up, man. That's all. Just be holy people. Be one people. I mean, we in the church have no problem with that, right? We nail that all the time. Hard. Easy to say. Hard to do. And Paul knows that, right? Because he goes on to explain how we do this. How do we live as the one people of God? And he doesn't make any assumptions about us just being able to just to do it. Uh, it's really hard. And I think he, he, he wants that to be obvious because of what he says next. He says, the truth is, look, on our own, we can't do this. We can't be one holy people of God. Uh, Paul knows that. He knows it's only possible through supernatural means, by the Spirit. That's the only way this is going to work for us to be the church. There's one body, he says, and one Spirit. Right? And then he goes on, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Are you getting it? One, 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 one. He says it over and over and over again to drive home this point of our unity in Christ by God's spirit. The only way there can be one holy people of God is by the one spirit of God, by his spirit working in us and filling us. We can't do it, but God can. And so living worthy of our calling, just like our salvation, it's an act of faith. It's an act of faith. It's a grace. It's a gift. It means asking God every day, every day, I have to do this and you have to do this. We have to ask God to help us to believe that this is who we are and this is what we've been called to be, the church, to help us trust him, to hear him, to obey him, to help us love him and to love one another. We have to ask him and his spirit to be one holy people of God, the church. We need the Holy Spirit. It takes supernatural power. But it also, Paul says, it takes supernatural power. It takes practice. What I mean by practice is it it takes effort. On our part, it takes hard work. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called with what? Humility, all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Now, I was thinking about this this week. Why, why does Paul pick out these? Why does he say humility, gentleness, patience, love? Why do we have to practice these things specifically uh, to live out our calling? And I think it's because he knows how hard this really is to do. He knows what it's going to be like for us. He knows that even as people reborn and filled with God's spirit, we're going to mess up. He knows that we're going to disagree, that we're going to have conflict. 
He knows that we're going to hurt each other sometimes. He knows that we can kind of trend towards being spiritually lazy sometimes. Paul knows that life together in Christ is hard. And so he says, it's going to take, it's going to take the Holy Spirit, but you, you got to work on it. It's going to take humility. You got to check your pride at the door. You got to be teachable in the church. Gentleness. You got to exercise your gifts and your abilities and your authority with a kindness towards one another. Patience, forbearance, bearing with one another. He says that, that, that's realizing that, man, even though we're born again, even though we are new creations in Christ, we all still sin. And we need forgiveness and tolerance. We have to exercise empathy with one another. In short, he says, we need to work hard at loving one another no matter what because we are that one people in Christ. We have to work at it to love one another. You know, it's interesting. We tend to think of humility and, and things like gentleness and meekness as weak, don't we? No one gives a pregame speech, right, on the power of meekness, right? No one's like, hey, let's take the field as a gentle team. These aren't characters that are kind of held up in popular culture. Leaders, people in power, are not marked by humility in our culture. And so we can tend to see these things as weaknesses rather than strengths. And they're anything but weaknesses. They are strength. Jesus, the strongest human to ever live, Anything but weak exemplified these characteristics. And as those in Christ were called to live like him, to be strong and committed to the Lord and to one another. And so it's easy. Here's what's easy. It's easy to encounter conflict or disagreement and just decide, I'm going to walk away. It's easy to let resentments build or divisions grow. It, it, it actually takes a lot of guts to love with humility and with meekness and patience. And it doesn't just happen. Living this way as one holy people won't just happen. It takes the Holy Spirit and it takes practice, hard work, and courage to live out humility, gentleness, and patience towards each other. And Paul says that in verse 3. He says we ought to be eager, eager to do what? To maintain. It takes maintenance. Again, this practice, this effort to maintain the what? The unity of the spirit. It's both. It's the power and the practice. And so I just want to encourage us. Are, are we praying for God's power to help us live as, committed part, as a committed part of his church, of his local church, to be his people, his one holy people? Are you asking God to help you because you need his help? I need his help. The only way we can do this is by his Holy Spirit. And then are we working hard are we eager to walk in humility and gentleness and patience as the people of God practicing love towards one another? We need to ask ourselves that constantly as his body. So first, to live as a church, we need power and practice, uh, supernatural power of the spirit, commitment to practicing these things, working hard to follow Jesus. And then the second thing is to live as a church, we need to immerse ourselves in the word of God. We need to immerse ourselves in the word of God. Paul highlights unity through power and practice, but he also highlights the importance of truth, specifically of the word of God for the church here in these 16 verses. The unity and the truth of God's word are both essential. They go together in the life of the church. 
In verse 17, 7 through 16, Paul says, we attain, that is, we live into the unity we have in Christ when we are equipped. We live into it when we're equipped, built up by the word of God. In verse 15, he says, we grow by speaking the truth in love with one another. For Paul and for us, this goes back to Jesus' own words, his final commissioning in Matthew 28, 16 through 20, where he says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and doing what? Teaching them, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. This is Jesus commanding his followers to make more followers, right? To help others follow Jesus, to disciple, that's what we call that, in the church. And so what we have here in, in, in chapter four is a picture of discipleship in the local church. Paul calls on the church to be marked by stability, good doctrine, resistance to false teaching, and perseverance to observe and obey all that Jesus has commanded. And the way he gets at this is he says that we need help to do this. In in the local church, we need help. We certainly need the Holy Spirit, but we also need people to help build the church up in these things. We need people to lead in these things. We need people to serve in these things. In other words, he gives us this gift And he gives us a lot of gifts. The Spirit gives us lots of gifts. They're enumerated all over the New Testament. But here, specifically, Paul points to these five gifts. And these five gifts that he's talking about are in verse 11. And I would describe all of them as ministers of the word in one sense or another. All five are ministers of the word. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. How are they ministers of the word? Well, apostles, in a sense, establish the ministry of the word. Prophets direct and call people to the promises of the word. Proclaim the word. That's what evangelists do. Uh, They share it with those who've not heard it. Shepherds help people live in light of the word. And teachers explain and help people understand the word. These are ministers of the word within the local church. These leadership positions within the church are gifts from Jesus himself. And they're not limited to church staff or ordained ministers. They are present, this is my conviction, they are present in every single expression of the local church throughout the world. In this room, these gifts are present. And their primary purpose is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. These gifts, these roles in the church are charged with serving the community with the goal of helping maintain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to help people grow into spiritual maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, is what Paul says. They prepare us for service and ministry. When we grow in unity and maturity, it strengthens us as a church so that we are resilient in the face of false teaching and false doctrine. That's his argument here in these verses in chapter four. And so what we get then is this powerful picture, right? a powerful picture of church as a community of people who are filled with the Spirit and who are deeply committed to learning God's Word. Spirit and Word, both. And so it reminds us that for the church to be the church, to live out the gospel we believe in, we have to immerse ourselves in God's Word together. It has to, in other words, what Paul's getting at is it always has to become your new reality that you live into, the water you swim in, the language you speak in is the Word of God. 
Uh, I like how uh, Pastor Michael Lawrence put it. He said, he said this. He said, there is a social character to knowledge, a community aspect to our perception of reality. That's why culture is so powerful. It shapes our perception of what is true and what is possible. In a fallen world, culture becomes a plausibility structure for unbelief, for the denial of God and the exaltation of self. That's why the apostles are so concerned about the unity of the local church. The church, he says, is a counterculture, an alternative plausibility structure for faith. I don't know if you ever thought about the church that way. I think it's, it's what Paul's getting at here. The church is called to be this spiritually empowered, biblically shaped counterculture bearing testimony, witness to the world of the saving and healing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the church is. Paul says we have to immerse ourselves in that world, that reality, together in the word, and only then will we be able to live out the gospel in the midst of every day in the world. And so in other words, you need the church. I need the church. Why? In part because the Christian community actually makes your faith plausible for you and for those around you. Mark Dever, in uh, his great book, Compelling Community, which I highly recommend, he says this. He says, when I'm tempted to believe the world lies, community helps me remember that God's truth is true and it's perfect. Repeat that act of returning to faith after a moment of doubt or temptation a dozen times over and you have a typical week in my life, he writes. Repeat it a hundred times and you have a faithful week in the life of a church. Repeat it a million times and the gospel is preserved for the next generation. See, Dever knows and Paul knows That for our faith to survive and thrive, we need to immerse ourselves in a community that is immersed in the word of God. Now, that'll never be easy. It certainly won't ever be convenient. But it is necessary. The reality is you can't do it on your own. You can't follow Jesus on your own. Uh, You can't follow Jesus as just your family. You need the church. I need the church. We need the church to preserve our faith. The other thing is the church needs you. It takes all of us, the whole group of us, for the local church to work. That's why Paul says in verse 16, he says, it takes the whole body joined and held together by every joint which is, uh, with which it is equipped. When each part, each part, you all are parts I'm a part. When each part actually works together, the body grows and builds itself up in love, he says. We need the whole body, in other words, to live out the whole gospel of Jesus. We need all the beautiful and different parts of the body here at Apostles. We need you and your gifts to be all in, in other words, for us to be the church. That's what Paul's describing. Uh, Just reflecting on this this week, I couldn't help but think of our children. Sing of our kids here at Apostles. You know, our children right now are immersed in a world where God is not plausible. Right? They're immersed at school and in their neighborhoods and whatever sports they participate. The world they're inhabiting now, more and more, God is not reasonable to believe in. In fact, God is detrimental 
in many circumstances to believe in, at least the God of the Bible. And so where biblical teachings on uh, human identity and sexuality and race and, and ethnicity that they're exposed to are not rooted in Scripture, the only way they're going to endure in their faith is if they have a community from within which the gospel is plausible for them because they've witnessed it. Not just they've heard it, but they've witnessed it, the power of God's word in a community where people are humble and gentle with each other, where they forgive and they're honest and they're committed to God's word and they're committed to loving one another because of their oneness in Jesus. And so it just, it challenges me and it encourages me and I hope it does the same to you, just as a church, we, we each have a responsibility to help create a community immersed and shaped by the grace and truth of God's word. We all bear that responsibility for, for ourselves, but also for the next generation. And also as a parent, as parents, we have a responsibility to provide our kids with the chance to be a part of a community immersed in the word of God. And, and I, I had to take a long look at my own life on this. And I just say this to parents, just to, to ask you, consider, your kids are watching you. They're watching the choices that we make as parents. They're watching our priorities. And I came to the conclusion, I, I think this is true. I mean, God can do all things, but I'm pretty sure this is generally true. My kids will never be more committed to their faith than I am. And maybe down the road, God will do something miraculous. But right now, they're not going to be more committed right now than I am to my faith or to the local church, to being immersed in a community shaped by the word of God. They're not going to be more committed than I am. And so it just challenges me. I have to think very carefully about what does it mean for us as a family to be engaged, to be immersing ourselves in a community where we're being immersed in the Bible. So to live as a church, we need the power and the practice. To live as a church, we need to immerse ourselves in the word of God. Uh, just come back to the Great Commission. We, we are called apostles to make disciples of all people, baptize them, and to teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. But to do this, it's going to take more than a small group of committed people. It takes all of us. And we know that because we've seen what God does with a group of committed people who love him and love his word. We, we can give testimony to what that looks like, and we want more. And so as new folks come into our community, our invitation is, is to come into this community and be immersed in a church family where we are immersing ourselves in God's word. And we want to press deeper and deeper into that ourselves. We want to see God do amazing things. Uh, when we're all in, in other words, God does amazing things. He changes lives.